Good. There we go. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 1, the second half here of chapter 1. Let us pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all that you have done for us and continue to do for us. We pray that our hearts would be inclined towards your sovereignty. We would know that your your paths and your and your will are are good and our best and that we would wholeheartedly without hesitation trust in them. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus who is the the perfect example of your goodness and your your sovereignty. That knowing that we are sinners, you sent your son to rescue us, to redeem us, to keep your plan in place. We pray that we might turn our hearts to your word this morning, that your spirit would be alive and speaking clearly and loudly through its pages. I just pray this in your precious and holy Son, Jesus. Amen. Like I said, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 19, starting in verse 19 this morning. But you may notice in the ESV, it's not the start of a new sentence. I think this is a good place for us to start. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Again, Holy Spirit, we ask that your presence would be known and felt, that we would be humbled by your word and by your teaching. It's in Jesus' precious name. So today we're going to get to what we'll call the end of the introduction in the body. 
What I mean by this is Paul has his normal, natural introduction to his letter, which we got, which was uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. And we, we have begun in the body in verse 12 of the letter. This is the, the, the body proper of the letter of Philippians, the main section of where Paul is going uh, to teach us. But Paul isn't really going to get into his typical teaching pattern until verse 27, which we'll pick up next week, where we'll get the first uh, command, if you will, his first exhortation. He says, only let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is him this is him giving us direction, giving us some teaching. Everything that we've looked at last week, everything we looked at last week, everything we're going to look at today is, I think, what Paul is trying to set up for us to be the lens by which we examine the rest of the book of Philippians. What we talked about last week and what we'll talk about this week is the, the sovereignty of God in the outpouring of life, in the, in the, in the flow of, of history, specifically the flow of history for Paul. Last week, Paul talked about how he was in prison, and he wanted the Philippians to know that his imprisonment wasn't a detriment to the gospel, but rather an advancement of the gospel. God was in control of this situation and is using this situation, has orchestrated this situation so that the gospel might be advanced. I think last week what we what we see is kind of the uh, the the 2020 hindsight vision of God's control over everything in the universe, and today we're going to talk about uh, a little bit. We're going to shift a little bit away from that to talking about as we look forward and see different paths that one might go down, uh, and and still trust that God is in control and sovereign. And I think again, I think this is what Paul is going to do. Paul is going to to use to kind of set the stage for us as we go through the rest of Philippians. And so the first thing that Paul is going to mention is he's going to mention the prayers of the Philippians. Paul has now presumably been in prison for, for a little length of time. We, we're, we're not really uh, even remotely sure of how long he's been in prison, but long enough for the Philippians to have sent uh, Epaphroditus to, to go and check on him, to bring him some aid and to bring him some comfort. Epaphroditus was sick. And, and so there's some amount of time that Paul has, has been in prison. And because the Philippians sent Epaphroditus, Paul also knows that the Philippians are praying for him. And really, it's undoubtable that the Philippians are praying for Paul's release because that's really what you would pray for as a believer for your mentor or for for an apostle, you pray for his release. This is the we see this all over the Book of Acts. Whenever the, the uh, Peter and, and and Paul are in prison, believers are praying for their release. This is no different, and this is what Paul kind of shows us. He says, "For I know that your that through your prayers, knowing that there is prayer, and knowing that that prayer is for Paul's." Deliverance, or for Paul's probable release. But Paul is going to set up this, this picture. He's going to set up this picture where there are, two, there are two likely outcomes to the situation that he has found himself in. Outcome number one is, is maybe we could define it as, as, the, as the will of the Roman Empire. 
And the will of the Roman Empire at this point in, in history is pretty strong. The Roman Empire is powerful, they're in charge, and they don't let anybody question them. The, the majority of Rome, Rome's history as an empire at, at this point in, in history is, is war. Rome is at war, and they're conquering peoples. And they go from one city-state to the next city-state, and they conquer them, and they're expanding the empire until, until a little bit uh, earlier, a couple, maybe a hundred or so years before uh, this particular situation, Paul's, Paul's life and ministry in the Roman Empire. And Rome gets to what is known as the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. And Rome is really serious at this point about its peace. They're kind of tired of being at war with everybody. Now, there's still there's still battles going on. People are trying to get some freedom, and Rome is like, no, you're not going to get any freedom, and they smash them. But by and large, the, the empire is not at war. It's at peace, and they're very serious about this peace. So serious, in fact, that anybody who disturbs the peace is, uh, is, is liable to a death sentence. So Paul, he is in prison because he is preaching the gospel, and his opponents don't like that he's preaching the gospel, don't like that he's preaching about Jesus. And so, so when he starts to preach, they kind of stir up the crowds, and everybody gets all riled up, and pretty soon there's a riot. And this is a disturbance of the peace. And so what the religious leaders are doing is they're pointing at Paul, and they're saying it's his fault, and Rome goes, okay, well, we have to deal with this, and we don't want the Roman peace to end, and so uh, we're going to punish those, 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 those rebels with death. So this is the charge that is, is leveled against Paul, his death. If he's convicted, if, he, if, they, if they find him guilty, he will be put to death. This is the will of the Roman Empire. Let's put it over here. Like I said, the Romans, they're powerful. They're powerful. And when the Romans kind of go, this is what we want, it's what happens. But Paul recognizes there's a bigger will at work. There's a bigger will exerting itself in uh, human history that makes the Roman will kind of tiny and pathetic. And that's the will of God. And the will of God is quite simple. It's the advancement of the gospel. So on one side, we have Roman peace. This is what we want to preserve. Paul's probably going to be put to death for it if he's convicted. And then on the other side is the advancement of the gospel, which is God's will. And so Paul, he has these two pictures in his mind. And what he's going to do at this point is he's going to, he's going to weigh these two things. And he's going to try to figure out, in some sense, he's going to try to figure out what is the right place. Paul, Paul is likely not writing the letter. He's not physically writing the letter. He's probably dictating this letter. And this is an interesting section of Paul's writing. It's unique, I think, from, from most of Paul's writing. I don't think we see this anywhere else. Where it sounds like what Paul is doing is just having an internal dialogue about what he wants to say, but he's saying it out loud, and so therefore there's this written down. It seems like Paul is actually kind of going back and forth with himself. So he looks at his situation, he recognizes that these two possible paths, and he says, okay, we're going to figure out what, what's going to happen. 
the first thing he addresses, he says, I want you to know this, this will turn out for my deliverance. But when Paul says deliverance in verse 19, he's, he, he very specifically said, he, he does not say freedom. Okay, I think that that's important in the progression of his thinking. He says my deliverance. And in the very uh, next verse, at the end of verse 20, he says, it, you know, whether by life or death. So either way, Paul recognizes that deliverance is going to happen. If he's put to death, deliverance happens. If he's freed, deliverance happens. I think, though, by the time we get to the end, we'll see that Paul really thinks he's going to be free. But we'll come back to that in a second. He says, your prayers and the Spirit of Christ Jesus, uh, by these things, through these things, I will find deliverance. And then he says, for it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. And that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Because this is ultimately why Paul is still on earth. Still here to honor Christ. And he honors Christ by doing his work, by proclaiming the gospel message all around the world. And then Paul says something that we've probably all heard before. For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Very popular Philippians passage, and, and, and rightfully so, I think. So he's got these two pictures. He's got these two, these two places that he could go. He could either die, or he could, he could live and be freed. He could either die, he could live and be freed. He goes, either way. And he's, he can say either way, because number one, if he's freed, what, a, what, what better way to, to, to display the salvation that Christ has wrought for him on the cross. Paul, who was a sinner before Christ, he was a sinner, he was enslaved, he was bound to death, he was, he was imprisoned to his sin, he was, he was dead in himself, and then Christ comes along, sheds his blood, freely gives his blood for Christ, and Paul is freed. How, what better picture could you establish than a man who is in prison because of this message being freed? It's a wonderful picture. But there's more to this, right? To live is Christ. Paul says to live is, is to embody him. I, as a follower of Christ, to live is to display Christ. That's great also. But he's also a minister of the gospel. So to live is to, is to proclaim Christ to the world. There's so many benefits to live as Christ. But to die is gain. To die is gain. And, and isn't it interesting how... How before Christ, death is an enemy. But after Christ, death isn't an enemy anymore. It's not, it almost ends up being the point of salvation, doesn't it? If you think about it. Christ, Christ dies so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And, and when are we fully reconciled to God the Father? It's at our death. So it's in, and in some senses, it's the completion of the work that Christ has done. To die is in fact, is, is in fact gain. Because Paul no longer has to suffer through, the, through the, the, the pains and the sinfulness of this world. He can be with his God who he longs to be with. To live is Christ. That's good. To live is to manifest Christ. To live is to proclaim Christ. To live is to, is to, is to example Christ. But, but to, die is, to die is good too. It's such an interesting, such an interesting dilemma. 
in some senses. And here's where I think the internal dialogue becomes an external dialogue. He says, he says if, if I am to live in the flesh, that, that means fruitful labor for me. He said, I, I get to minister to, to Christ. This is what he, part of what he means when he says to live as Christ. I can, I can preach the gospel. I can no longer be bound and change. I can, I can preach to a to 100 people, to 1,000 people, to however many people God wants to put in my path. I, I will preach the gospel. This is fruitful labor for me. This is good. Yet, yet, yet which shall I choose? I, I cannot tell, he says. Which shall I? So he sees, he sees the benefit of living. But in the back of his mind, I think there's this pull, right? This pull that Paul, oh man. But, 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 so, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So, I'm hard pressed between the two, verse 23. My desire is to part and be with Christ. That is far better. Isn't it? I think I think sometimes we sometimes we get caught up in this in this life. And and, and I there are things in this life that are so joyous, right? We get that. There are so many good joys in this life. But all of those will pale, pale in comparison. To being with our God and Father. And so Paul, he looks at this situation, and now it's starting to kind of now it's starting to change a little bit. At, at first, maybe we kind of see, oh, perhaps it's the, the will of Rome, but, but perhaps this is still our examination based on human logic and rationale, what we talked about last week. It it's no no, it's maybe it's not the will of Rome for him to be put to death. Perhaps he's starting to recognize, well, maybe this is. This can be just as good. I could die. <laughs> but I also see the benefit. And, and so we see, we see this tension, this pulling inside of Paul where he goes, if, but if I get to die, that's far better. I don't have to suffer anymore. Paul And Paul has suffered. He's in prison. He's been stoned to near death. He's been shipwrecked. It's, it's a horrible life he's lived. He's like, it would be better to not have to endure that. But, but, I'm not, I'm not sure which or what I should choose. Hard press. It's difficult. It's a difficult decision. But and he goes on. But but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Yeah, I want to be with with my Lord and Savior. I want to be with God the Father. But I recognize that by me staying, this is good for you. This is better for you. So here's what Paul's now doing. He's now escalating death above his life. He's escalating. He's changing the, the way he's thinking about to die. He looks at it. He looks at it based on his own thinking, his own rational, his own rational thought, and his own, in some ways, selfishness. And he says, "For me, it would be better to die." But he recognizes that his place in this life isn't just about him. It's not just about him. And so this is this, I think, sometimes it feels like Paul's having this inward dialogue with himself, and he's, he's just said it out loud, and so the guy writing it down, is just, he just wrote it down as Paul said it, and just seems like he's kind of jumping back and forth. But all the while, did you notice? Did you notice that Paul does not, he does not look at either of these situations 
and condemn either. Paul doesn't look at his life and look at the paths in front of him and say, this is the way God is going to work and this is the way, if this happens, God's not. I mean, that might seem, that might seem like a, a silly a silly way to, to, to think about it because clearly Paul's not clearly Paul's not going to think that way, right? He's not going to think that one path is wrong and one path is right because God is in control. But isn't this how we are a lot of times? Don't we often get caught up in the logic and rational examination of our life situation and oftentimes forget to trust that God is at work? Because we could look at, again, we could look at last, at Paul being in prison. We could make rational discussions and say that the, Paul being in prison is not right. Or Paul being freed maybe isn't right or maybe is right. And, and if you would die, it would be outside of God. But Paul puts this, this strange trust, right? This strange trust. Let me get back to the verses here. In the work of Christ. In the work of God, excuse me. He puts a strange confidence in the what he is talking about. He says, convinced of this. In verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. He can see both he can see both situations as being good and right. But he's going to place his confidence. He's going to place his confidence in being freed. Convinced of this I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here is the conviction that I think Paul holds. That as he goes through his life, earnestly seeking the Lord, the Lord's work will not falter. I think this is Paul's conviction. And I think, that, I think it colors the way he thinks about his current situation. But it also changes the way Paul lives out his life. It changes the way he thinks about the, the paths that are in front of him. As he looks behind him and he sees, he sees the progression of God's work. He holds to this confidence. And then as he looks forward, this idea of God is still at work even when I can't see it manifests itself in the way he thinks about what's, what's going to happen. Anybody in this room think that as you look into the future, as you look into your life and you start to think and you start to plan and you start to rational, rational, rationally examine the way your, your life is, is about to go, do you, do you ever look at the situation and go, two things could really happen here. And maybe you're all going, well, no, never just two. It's always more than two. 
But as we look into the future, it's almost it's, we almost never look into the future and go, there's only one possible thing that could happen. We always recognize there's many paths. And then what we what we do in life, especially especially when we don't have a confidence in the in the work of the Lord, is that we as we as we go through life, we do everything in our power to go on the paths that we want to go down. Or that make the most sense to us. Anybody in here think that it was probably probably the best thing for me is to be in prison? Nobody, nobody wants to raise their hand on that one? Anybody in here think that the best thing for me is to be stoned to death by stones? Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> we... We don't, we don't think that way, right? We, we, we look at the life situation, we, we think about it, and we rationalize it based on, based on, on in, in most cases, our own selfishness. See, what, what did Paul just do? He, 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 he balanced the things in his, in his mind. And he came up with one thing would be better than the other, death. But why is death for Paul better? Because of selfish motivation. For Paul, and really Paul alone, it's good for him to die. It's gain for him to die. But what else we notice is that Paul doesn't just throw that to the side. He understands that that what's happening in this internal battle is God teaching and growing him and, and stretching him and I think this is sometimes how we need to start thinking about our, our prayer lives, for example. I think this can go into a lot of different areas, but 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 how often do we how often do we look at our lives? Or let me say it in a different way. How often do we do we approach prayer wrongly? I think there's two I mean there's probably a lot of ways that we can error in prayer. But I think there are two predominant ways that we err in prayer. We, we, we either pray like, a, like a, a young, selfish child with no real regard for what God desires on the one side, where, where our only prayers are, Lord, give me, and God becomes a divine Santa Claus. I, I'd like a, a, a new job that pays better or that has better hours, that doesn't have that annoying boss I'd I, I like a new car, or I'd like to pay off bills, or, and, and God becomes a divine, a divine gift giver. And, and this, I think, is wrong because it, it discounts God's control over life. It discounts that God is, is not just at work for my own selfish desires, but is at work for the goodness of all, God, all, man, all mankind, for the goodness of creation itself. But the, but the other error that we often have when we go from when we go from this when we go from from selfishness is we jump to the other side of the I think the correct path we jump to the other side and we say God cares nothing of what I desire and so we look at what Paul's saying here and we, sh- and we say well what Paul should have said is that yeah maybe he knows that to die is game he should never even have mentioned it just keep it to himself internalize that and and, and don't ever think that God thinks about you and what you 
But that's also wrong. And this is why Jesus says, says to his disciples, in faith, pray, pray whatever you want, and it will be given to you. And, and, and it is, it, that's a paraphrase, and it's probably not exactly how he says it. But, but that's, that's the essence of what, what Jesus is saying when he says this. He doesn't give clarifications in these, in these sections. Because God does, in fact, care for our desires. But what Paul does here, Paul does here as he explains this to us, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, is he, is he's, he's bringing his desires and God's desires in, in alignment to each other. And he's weighing them and he's examining them and he's, he's going to see them for what they really are. And so as we think about prayer, as we think about as we think about living out our lives, I think one of the things that we see here, one of the things that we examine as we as we observe Paul in this, is that knowing that God is at work and knowing that his work is good changes the way we think about our past and it changes the way we think about our future. And Paul is not, he's not exhorting us to this. He's not telling us this is how we should live. He's not He's not to that section of his, of his writing. But this is what he's showing us, a confidence that no matter the situation, whether in prison or in freedom, whether with rivals or no rivals, whether he is freed or he is put to death, God is always in control. And Paul can have confidence in this because he has learned by life and he has observed in Scripture that the promise that God gives to mankind is that his control isn't just for God's selfish desires, but is for the goodness of his creation. And that's an important distinction that we make with, that God makes or that Scripture makes with, with other gods, right? We don't see it as much because, because we don't have a lot of deities religions kind of bombarding us with false teachings about what God is. But every other God around Paul in the ancient world is selfish and does everything for selfish motivations. But this is not how God is. And so we cling to this. We cling to this in our prayer lives, as the Philippians do. Knowing that, yes, God could deliver Paul, but deliver him through death. But trusting that God cares enough about us to hear these words, to weigh these with, the, with his will. This is how we live out our lives as really struggles and trials come into our lives. Knowing that these trials, these struggles are not, they're not detriments to us, but in fact, very well could be the advancement of the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we we so often struggle with our own our own selfishness and maybe even sometimes don't even know that that's what we struggle with. 
as we look in our lives and, and see things that we maybe don't like or we look into our future and see things maybe we don't like. We get caught up in we get caught up in those things. And it diverts our focus from your work and from what you have us to do. Lord, we see in Scripture your, your purposes, your plans from calling Abraham before he knew anything of you. rescuing Moses before he's in the position to lead his people. Bringing Samuel when Eli's children will not follow in your footsteps. To choose David and not his older brothers who look better. To suffer and to die on a cross so that we might not. Lord, as we, as we think about Scripture and as we examine Scripture, we examine the story of your working in this world, we know that you are at work. And we trust that your work is good. And we cling to this as we go through life, trusting that at all times, in, in every way, that you are working for the good for those who love you. Help this to realign the way we think about our jobs, the way we think about our, our families, the way we think about our, our, missionary, our mission in this world, a proclamation of your word. Help it to change the way we approach you in prayer, approach you in our, in our time in, in the word. Help the knowledge of your Sovereign control. Help that to change the way we live our lives so that we might glorify you in all that we do. In your sin,